0: Hey everyone, I am David, and I will be taking us back into the book of Acts today. The last few uh, weeks we've been disrupted by joy, but now we're diving straight back in. Um, And I wanted to kind of set the mood, give the setting uh, for this new situation that we find our protagonist Paul in. So hang on to your seatbelts. Darkness. Chaos and salty damp. That's pretty much all I have right now, that and feeling like I've been rocked back and forth by a sea monster for days now. I haven't eaten in I don't know how long. It's hard to keep anything down with everything around is heaving as bad as my stomach. All around I hear prayers to virtually every supposed God except the real one, not once is Jesus' name called out to, and he's the only one with a proven track record of stopping storms. More than 270 people on this ship Storms for days, bad decisions from the captain out the wazoo, and oh, by the way, I'm a prisoner. Hi, I'm Paul. I suppose you're wondering how I got myself in this situation. So let's recap. The last few messages in Acts, we have seen Paul get arrested because he preached the gospel and caused disturbances in a whole bunch of places, and finally caused enough trouble with the crowd that he was arrested by Roman officials. He was brought before a Roman governor and the governor basically handed him off to other people, delayed his um, judgment because he was hoping for a bribe, and then he got replaced by another official who then continued to hold on to Paul, and then they shipped him off somewhere else. Uh, And finally, under a particularly, I guess, hairy trial, he appeals to Caesar at which point the Roman official has to say, all right, well, fine, you can go testify before Caesar. So he gets handed off to other officials. He testifies along the way, he testifies before, before kings and governors, and then after he says, after he appeals to Caesar, Jesus actually appears to him and says that he should not be afraid because he is going to testify to Caesar in Rome. And he gives Paul encouragement by way of that. So he goes back and forth between a whole bunch of different officials, and that's actually how he got the ancient nickname Ping-Pong Paul. That's not true. I made that up. Scholars actually have no idea how he got that ancient nickname. And through all this, we've been disrupted multiple times. Uh, We've been disrupted by joy and peace and love. And I wanted to kind of go through this chapter. I was really excited about it because it shows how Paul himself handle disruptions to his expectations. So I'm going to read the entire chapter 27 of Acts, because everything I'm talking about is just all throughout the chapter, and I actually got really excited. For anyone who knows the Aubrey Matron Master and Commander series, um, it was really cool reading this chapter, because there's just a lot of ship stuff, and I knew that was going to be useful one day. So here we go. Chapter 27 of Acts. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, and real quick, we, I believe, Luke is with Paul at this point. Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the imperial regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramidium about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. From there, we put out to sea again and passed to the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And going to the lee of something basically means the wind are on the other side of the island so that you have some shelter. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Nidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete, opposite Salmoni. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lycia. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force, called the Northeaster, swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. Quick note. Being able to head into the wind or really get any what's called headway is what allows a ship to one, not get swamped by waves and two, to actually make what's called steerage way so they can turn and direct the ship. So they had to turn and follow the wind which was going in the opposite direction of where they wanted to go. As we passed to the lee of a small island, you know what that means now, you're welcome, called Cauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. So the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Syrtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. Now, the reason for that was because if they let it down behind the ship, as the ship was pushed along by the wind, the anchor dragged, it would keep the ship's nose uh, pointed in a single direction. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. That'd be anything, extra ropes, extra cables, anything they didn't need in that moment. It was extremely desperate for them to do. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved." After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea when about midnight the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, "'Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved.' So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. "'For the last 14 days,' he said, "'you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything.' Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. So at this point, hoisting the foresail is kind of the opposite of dropping the anchor at the stern like they did earlier, where if they let the... the, Foresail is at the front of the ship, and if the wind is pushing it, it's basically dragging the ship straight toward the beach, because a sandy beach will do a lot less damage than rocks will, and they were kind of hoping to salvage the ship at this point. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. So that was a lot. I'm basically just going to share the things that I think God was kind of pointing out to me as I was reading it and just talk about disruptions and to kind of contrast how everyone was responding to these disruptions of plans and expectations and what we can learn from that. So as I was reading through, and if you have notes, uh, if you click through to the sermon notes, you'll find that a lot of these are actually blanks. And if you see other things than what I found, that's totally fine. Just fill in the blanks um, and just kind of do a little study yourself. But the initial disruption was the oncoming winter. Now, at this point, Paul was already a prisoner, but his expectation was that he was going to Rome. He was gonna sail to Rome as a prisoner and he was going to testify. Jesus told him that um, in a vision. So that was his expectation, that was the expectation of everyone bringing him, was they were going to get there. The disruption was, after some difficult sailing, they ran out of time against the oncoming winter, which basically in the Mediterranean just meant a lot of unpredictable storms. Now, the reactions of the different people to this were very telling, and I think most importantly they were telling of what everyone was most focused on. So the owner, the pilot, the sailors, um, depending on the translation, it might say captain as opposed to pilot, they their reaction uh, against the oncoming winter is to risk the ship by sailing for what they hoped would be a better port. Now, it does say that the port they were in was not suitable for wintering, that is waiting out the storms, but basically the scholars and things that I read were saying it's, it's not like it would kill them to be there, it would just be really... Like It would be difficult, and it would be kind of miserable, but they would not likely be destroyed in a harbor. Um, It could have been unsuitable because they would have had to ration food, any number of reasons. But they wanted to risk the ship and the cargo and a lot of money by sailing for another port. The soldiers and the centurion risk the mission. They decide to go against the oncoming winter and try and get Paul there sooner and the other prisoners who were apparently there. Paul stayed on target, his reaction to this oncoming winter was to warn them and recommending that they not try this. Now, not getting there sooner, um, may, doesn't, maybe it doesn't feel like staying on target. And it's possible that the centurion was a little suspicious when Paul's like, hey, we could go to Rome later. But Paul knew this was he was going to be at Rome. He had no doubt. He was trying to save everyone else on the ship and just make... Wise recommendations to them. Then we have the storm. Everyone but Paul during the storm, possibly Luke, uh, one of Paul's companions. But you know, I'm I'm generalizing. Paul, uh, sorry, everyone but Paul, basically over time gave up. They tried everything they knew. They tried every sailing trick in the book, and they could not make headway against the wind. And they despaired of their lives. In fact, the the way the text describes it, they couldn't see the sun and the moon or the stars for days, which at the time was their only means of navigation. So they didn't even know where they were on the sea. They didn't know where they were. They didn't know if they were going to live or if the ship was going to hold up. So they started to give up. At that point, Paul, again, stays on target and he gives them an encouraging word where he says, basically, Man, you should have listened to what I told you. Now, I read over that, and my initial read of that is Paul's being a little snide. Like, I told you, so you should have listened to me. But I don't think that's what he was doing. Uh, That's the last thing you want to do to a bunch of very despondent, despairing sailors and soldiers with swords is to tell them that they were dumb. And I don't think that would have been very encouraging in the spirit. So I looked into it, and basically... What Paul was doing is he was not giving an I told you so, but he was holding up the fact that he had correctly said this was going to happen from God, and they didn't listen then, so he was saying, all right, here are my credentials, let's try this again. He was not about glorifying himself and getting them to admit he was right, he was about glorifying God, and in fact, if you, depending on the translation, if you go back and you you look at when he initially made the warning before they set sail, he said, "I have perceived," which is actually a divine a, a way of, of saying I divinely know at a, that is I'm kind of having a vision, or God is telling me that this is going to be a big problem. Don't do this. So his whole "I told you so" was actually God told you so, and he's staying on target. He's saying we're going to get there. I know we're going to be in Rome. I don't doubt this. But then he says, however, in addition to that, an angel from God promised that he will grant all of your lives. And I wanted to point that out because it's so amazing. The way it says it is in this is I believe God has has given you their lives. Other translations say God has granted you their lives, which means Paul has been praying for them. He knows he's getting to Rome, one way or another. But he has been praying for the lives of his captors, for the lives of the crew. Are they needed for God to get him to Rome safely? No. God could pick him up and bring him there if he wanted, but he was praying for them, and God granted that to him. I thought that was really cool. So then, disruption, the island. And this comes from Paul saying, he goes through this whole thing, it's like, you know, uh, I want you to take courage. God is going to spare your lives, and you know, none of you, none of you, is, not one of you is going to lose a single hair of your head. However, we're going to run aground on an island, and the ship is going to be destroyed, which is kind of a bummer way to end that. Um, and so Paul warns them about this island, but he said it's it's going to happen. Don't don't worry about it. We're just going to crash. And in response to this. They take courage, and they're glad that they're going to live, but they still try all their new tricks in the book. They, they do everything they can to avoid running, in ground, or running aground, and eventually it gets so bad that the sailors try, essentially fake uh, lowering anchor so that they can lower the lifeboat and try to get away. They try to leave everyone else behind just so they can get away in a lighter craft, now, at this point, the soldiers in the centurion respond to Paul when he says, if they leave, you will not be saved. The soldiers cut loose the lifeboat. Everybody's, on the, everybody's in the same boat. Everyone's going to live or die together, essentially. And then Paul, again, stayed on target, reminded them of the promise, saying, Every, everyone, we're in this. Everyone needs to be here. We're all going to share the same fate and then he reiterates the promise. And finally, we have the wreck, and that is, that's, that's a disruption. And honestly, sometimes in the last year, I'm sure many of you have felt like the disruption that happened was a full-on wreck. In response to the threat, feeling like they were gonna run aground and being terrified of that, the sailors try to beach the ship. And like I mentioned, they're trying to maybe salvage something because of a sandy beach is much better for a ship than being pounded to pieces by the waves or hitting rocks. That doesn't work. Remember, Paul said they were going to lose the ship. They were still trying. The soldiers at this point, apparently without the centurion's orders, decide that their best bet is to just kill the prisoners, just kill them so that none of them escape. The centurion listens to Paul, or I, I guess at this point, the centurion just doesn't want Paul to be killed, and so he stops them and he just tells everyone, dive overboard. If you can swim, get to the beach. Grab a piece of the ship, float to the beach, whatever you can do. They all get there. And Paul, again, at no point in this little episode does it say Paul was worried at this point. You know, when the, the soldiers stand up, they're like, all right, let's kill everybody. That'll solve it. Doesn't say Paul panicked, and I very seriously doubt he did at that point after everything. So that is how everybody on the ship responded to these disruptions. Whatever disruptions we've had in our life, I think that we can learn a lot about why the different guys responded to these different disruptions in the way that they did. And I think the very simple reason for this is their foundation. That is their spiritual foundation, what their expectations were, what they were putting their confidence and their hope in that guided their decision-making and their responses. So the captain, the sailors of the ship, it doesn't explicitly say this in the text, but they were probably motivated by money. For one, staying in a, in a, in a not great port would very likely have meant some of their cargo spoiling that would have been some amount of financial loss for them. They were motivated, definitely, according to the text, by an easier harbor. They didn't want to deal with whatever the difficulties would be in that port that they were, uh, I think it was called Fair Havens, which is kind of ironic. Um, But what they were motivated by was getting to a good place to have an easier time of it. The centurion, the Roman officer, and his soldiers were motivated by the job. And you see this throughout virtually all of their responses until they finally start listening to Paul. They were motivated by their duty to get Paul and the other prisoners to Rome. That was their job and they were going to do it. Paul, his foundation, his motivation, his focus was that he was going to deliver the gospel in Rome before Caesar, in fact. And God had told him, you're going to do that take courage. You're going to achieve that. And this is the difference between all of them. And I want each of us to look at these different motivations and maybe think of some in yourself. Look at your motivations, look at your foundations and saying, what are my focuses? What are, uh, what is in my foundation? because that is going to show us how we respond to different uh, disruptions that happen in our life. Now, I want to make a really, really interesting point here, is that this was not Paul's only shipwreck. This is the only one I believe that's recorded, but he was actually shipwrecked three times. So let's read from a list in 2 Corinthians 11, where Paul basically says, here's a lot of stuff that I've dealt with while trying to deliver the gospel. He says, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea, which apparently in one of these shipwrecks, he he ended up overboard a ship, maybe after the ship sunk, and he was just floating there for a night and a day out in the open sea before probably someone picked him up or he was washed ashore. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. And yet, his response in all of these, very likely, if not definitely, the response that he had in the shipwreck that's recorded. He was focused on God's promise. He was focused on the hope of delivering the gospel. Here is his foundation. Oh, sorry, let me, let me finish this one. He said, I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Yeah, Paul's going through so much that I forgot to read some of it. So anyway, this is his foundation I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. This is from Philippians chapter 4. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. That last verse often gets quoted out of context as support for whatever we feel like doing. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not the point. The point is, anything which God calls us to do, he gives us the strength to do it. And to be more specific, in the context of what he's saying in Philippians, any suffering that God calls us through, he gives us the strength to suffer in it well and to have hope in him. And as we are reading in Acts 27, that's a lot. But through it all, Paul had confidence and hope that what God had told him was going to happen. So the big idea, what I want us to be thinking about the rest for, forever, is my reaction to disruption is dictated by the strength of my foundation. It is always a byproduct, how you behave in a disruption. And something unexpected happening. Whether it's good or bad, it's always a byproduct of how strong your foundation is. Now, I wanna be very clear having negative feelings, being a little worried, being nervous, being sad, mourning, that is not evidence of a weak foundation. Having a strong foundation, being confident in difficulty, does not mean you're just this flatline, emotionless person. What it means is that your hope is secure, and the way that you treat others in the midst of that is with a Christ-like manner. And Jesus is always a perfect foundation, but sometimes we have other weak parts in it, and we need to ask God to help us to delve in and really examine whether Jesus in his purity is truly our foundation. My reaction to disruption is dictated by the strength of my foundation. Lord, it has been a long and tough year. For some of us, it's been a long and tough multiple years. We've had some good things happen. We've had a lot of bad things happen. But we have your good news. We have a hope in you that we can share with others. Please help us to dig into the weak spots of our foundation and to let you fill them with yourself so that we can have the strength that is necessary to be able to feel the feelings, to to deal with the the sorrow, to deal with the, the, the worry, to deal with the stress, but do it in such a way that points us back to you and that we can point others to you. Lord, you love us and you are gracious to us and we love you and thank you for that grace. Amen.